You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. You're listening to Smashed from The Ensemblist, the only podcast that shows you Broadway from the inside out. I'm Mo Brady. And I'm Aaron Albano. Welcome back, listeners, to our tongue-in-cheek recap of what is still the Broadway community's favorite TV show, Smash. Yes, we're talking about the NBC series that aired from 2012 to 2013. Smash was also an incredible glimpse into the theater community in the early 2010s, as many of the show's writers, actors, and dancers were played by real Broadway performers with real Broadway cred. But we wanted to go back in time to see how the show has weathered, what it got right, and what it got very, very wrong. <laughs> so let's dive in and talk about Season 1, Episode 3, Enter Mr. DiMaggio. <laughs> Aaron, give us the stats. Okay, Mo. Enter Mr. DiMaggio premiered on February 20th, 2012. It was written by Teresa Rebeck and directed by Michael Mayer. He's directed all three of the first three episodes. They both. He wrote, uh, Teresa wrote it. Teresa. Mr. Rebeck wrote it, (laughs) wrote all three episodes, and Michael Mayer has directed all three so far. Now, here's where viewership gets a little fun. This is the first week where ratings take into account households with DVR. 2012. (laughs) Welcome. Apparently, this week's episode had a live viewership of 6.5 million, which is about 1.5 million down from last week. But including DVR viewership, the episode had a total of 8.7 million viewers, which was 0.65 more than the week before. Oof, so much math. 6.5 million people. How How many weeks in a Broadway show would you have to run in order to reach 6.5 million people. Oh, goodness. So many. Yeah. If you yeah. had a theater that had 2,100 seats, right? Okay. Yeah, so let's take 6.5 6. million. We divide by 2,100. So you'd have to perform on Broadway for 74 years without a day off in order to reach 6.5 million people. LOL. That's too many. And <laughs> and and yet, like, 6.5 million was like, oh, oh they're doing so bad. Right. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about... What the world we live in. Let's talk about the songs. Oh, yeah. So the episode only had one original song by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But two covers were also featured, Bruno Mars's Grenade, sung by Will Chase, and Redneck Woman by Gretchen Williams, sung by Catherine McPhee. And what happens in this episode, Mo? Well, it's only three weeks until rehearsals begin for the workshop of the new Broadway-bound musical Bombshell. However, other than a great idea that may or may not have been stolen from composer Tom Hewitt's assistant, Ellis... Up-and-coming ensemblist Ivy Lynn wonders if the only reason Derek gave her the part for the workshop is because she slept with him. He doesn't seem to give her any reason to think otherwise, spending his energy on courting Karen for a role in the ensemble. Meanwhile, the creative team hunts for the rest of the workshop's cast. They think they've found their leading man, Joe DiMaggio, in Michael Swift, played by Will Chase. Since he is offer only, Ellen and Derek scout him out at an off-off-Broadway show. That Bruno Mars jukebox musical. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) Okay. But it turns out Michael Swift has a past with our lyricist Julia Houston. They had an affair five years ago. Dun-dun-dun! Karen's parents are still worried about her, but she stands up to them saying that being in the chorus of a workshop is so much bigger than many people get to do. 
Dennis tells Tom that Derek and Ivy are dating. Julia confides in Tom about her affair, which Ellis overhears, but Ellis makes his own mistakes, stealing Julia's notebook of ideas for Bombshell, as well as sleeping with his friend, maybe girlfriend, maybe roommate, played by Condola Rashad. All right, favorite performance by an ensembleist. Who did we see in this episode? Well, there weren't very many ensemble numbers. Numbers, yeah. It was, there was a number in the Bruno Mars jukebox musical. Right. We saw two. We saw one in the Bruno Mars musical, which mm-hmm. had three men, and then one woman played by Tony nominee Corinne Plenity. Yes. Right. And they're performing a strange performance of... Bruno Mars's Grenade, mm-hmm. which then has her dancing with three ensemble men. And with Will Chase. Right. What did you think about that number? I I mean, I lived for the number. It felt so, like, downtown and so off-off-Broadway as it was meant to. Does, it was an off-off-Broadway show going to have a Bruno Mars song in it? I don't know. It felt... I mean, but it wasn't the whole... Isn't the idea the whole show is Bruno Mars... Wasn't it a jukebox? I thought they were talking that right. it was a... When would there be a Bruno Mars jukebox musical off off broadway if if bruno mars is going to license his music it's not going to be for off off broadway fair that is real that is super real okay logic aside i thought the number was good (laughs) (laughs) sure i mean she's a fantastic dancer she she moves singularly stunning yeah she's stunning she was stunning in come fly away she's stunning in this this definitely felt like a wow we really like kareen can we get her on TV? Like, like she, she doesn't have any lines. She doesn't do anything except for just, like, dance amazingly at you. And you sort of get a sense of this off-Broadway show. Well, I mean, I, I, well, she does have, in the best way, this wild quality to her movement. And I, that was in that way because they were singing to Grenade. It was sort of foreshadowing his place in the world of our characters. Right. And so with him portraying this wild, unpredictable presence coming into our writing duo it was the perfect woman for him to dance with what was your favorite ensemblist moment in the show well we didn't get a lot of performances Mm -hmm. right we get the bruno mars show and then we get the karaoke at the end yes right but my favorite moment goes to jessica lee golden who has the line (laughs) as she's walking out of the dressing room this was iconic we'll be at vintage R.I.P. Vintage. R.I.P. Vintage. So, so Vintage is a wine bar. It was just a wine bar. Fifty first and ninth, right? A a few years back, lots of years back, where I think Atlanta Atlas Social Club. Oh, where what it is now? Okay, yeah. Yeah, It was right next to the Snug. It was right. You're naming all these places that were that are closed now. Yeah, Ninth Avenue's changing over mm -hmm. New York. Anyway, I just loved that moment because it felt. I mean, that felt very authentic. It was amazing. It was so. It was so beautifully insidery. Yes. I remember while we were watching it back when it was airing, everyone like latched onto that line and just started <laughs> saying it for the next year and a half. It was great. Moments that scream 2012. R.I.P. Vintage. R.I.P. Vintage. <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde is up on the marquee. Oh, oh I, right. I love these. I love these shots where we get to look down 44th or 45th Street uh-huh. and we get to see what's up on the marquee. Because that's what makes it the most time capsule. Yeah, exactly. Because you know exactly it, when in this was shot and when it essentially takes place. Right. Are you ready for Albano fact check? Sure. All right. Here we go. Ivy has a heaven on earth poster hanging above her bed. So this is an adult woman. In an adult woman's apartment in New York City. Okay. And above her bed, where she does adult woman things, uh-huh. is a poster for her currently running Broadway show. Is that something that you would really do? It w- was framed. Yeah. Okay. Then that makes it better. Okay. I feel like, hmm. First off, there's putting your show posters in your house, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's a choice. And I think, it, I think it's, before we start, like, 
shaming people with <laughs> stuff in their house, myself included. It is good to be proud of what you've done and be good. Sure. I'm sure you have your Tony Award sitting on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Right in the center of my dining room. <clears throat> there's something about a show poster that just screams, maybe it's because it's marketing to me, mm-hmm. where it, I know there's plenty of actors that we love who we work with who have show posters framed in their houses. Oh, no, totally. Are you one of them? Not posters. I have playbills. Okay. Do you have them in your bedroom? No. Okay. For some reason, in your bedroom just feels like another level to me. Well, I think what's worse is not even that it, the placement of the bedroom. We've already established that Ivy, this is her entire world. Right. So she's been not- in Wicked for a year. She's been in Wicked for a year. Where's the Wicked poster? Yeah, right? I'm literally like, there's no other pictures of anything else. I feel like that's more telling mm. to me than her current show in her bedroom. I'm so, like, where's the rest of your life? So it's not a it's not a poor choice by the set decorator of Smash. It's a real character. It, I think so. Okay. Yeah, because literally, like, she, this is the woman that has Marilyn pictures around her dressing room station at her Broadway show right. before she even had the job. Whew. Like I said, this is a very specific woman that we're watching. I feel like this whole podcast series is just an exercise in turning me from Team Ivy to Team Karen. <laughs> One more thing that screams 2012 is when Karen is going back to the airport after visiting her family, Mm -hmm. her friends pick her up to drive her to the airport. Oh. Do you remember when you had to do that? Yeah. Now you'd just be like, I'm going to call an Uber. I'm going to call a Lyft. (laughs) I think that's the biggest RIP. Bigger than the Brill building is getting a ride. Getting a ride from your friends to the airport? Yeah. Well, the best part is like, oh, your friends want to bring you to the airport. And all of them. Like all all three three of them them want to bring you to the airport when your parents are right there. Yeah. Jenny Barber, you have a baby. (laughs) Like. On the way. It does seem like being pregnant would be like the thing that gets you out of driving friends to the airport. Exactly. It's like, no, put your feet up. Analysis. Okay. Okay. First off, drink to the face count. We're at two. Are we? Okay. Do we jump back into chorus shaming so quickly? There's a lot of it in this episode. There's a lot of chorus shaming. There's a lot of it in this episode. Leanne, Karen's co worker at the bar, she says, don't call it the chorus. It's the ensemble. So we are feeling sort of semi woke in this moment. But then then she she says, backs right back up. Although, if you ask me, that's calling a garbage collector a sanitation worker. Uh huh. I was like, you must be joking. I was like, firstly, well, okay, let's, let's go back to this. What do you feel? Is the distinction between calling the chorus of a show chorus versus ensemble? All right. To me, chorus, we don't really see a lot of choruses on Broadway anymore because everyone is wearing so many hats and so many specific hats. I think about chorus as like 42nd Street, right? There's lots of women. We They don't have names. We don't know who they are. They're all there to do the same thing at the same time with different spacing. Okay. Versus an ensemble. If I'm going to parse- More a group of individuals, I guess. Right. Working together. <clears throat> okay. I could buy that. Which is why I think then we can say things like- Godspell is an ensemble musical uh-huh. because those are 10 individuals who are sharing the story, but they're really working together in order to do that. And therefore, that's why chorus is so much... Is- Derogatory. Yeah. Der- co- because chorus means that you don't care about that person's individuality. And you, yeah, you have no identity outside of being in this group. Okay, so, now I get, I get on board with but that. But I don't think that's a universally held opinion no. about chorus versus ensemble. I think that for most people, even a lot of people in our industry, we just called them the chorus before and now we call them the ensemble. Yeah, but that's the case for like putting them down. Right. Okay, I could buy that a little bit. 
Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Because What's your yeah. take on chorus versus ensemble? No, I, I honestly didn't know. And all I could think of was like, well, in the derogatory sense, I'm like... You will refer to people as chorus boys and chorus girls. And it's not the word, it's how you use it. Exactly. Also. Yeah, I mean, like, there's so many moments. This is the episode where chorus shaming takes a big jump, and they're all sort of directed toward Karen to make her feel bad that she's in the ensemble. Right. Jack offers Karen a part in the workshop's ensemble, but in the same breath tells her, you have way too much talent to be in the ensemble. And she's like, that would be great. And he's like, aren't you mad? And she's like, essentially being like, am I supposed to be mad? He offers the, well, you're too good to be in the ensemble. (laughs) Why would you give someone a job while simultaneously telling them they're too good for the job? Yeah. Yeah. The more I look into how Derek looks at a star versus an ensemble track, Mm -hmm. the less I understand. When I think about the best, busiest directors, director, choreographers, Mm -hmm. which Derek is, those people came out of the ensemble. Yeah. Andy Blinkenbuehler, Casey Nicola, Dennis Jones, Joanne Hunter, Mm -hmm. Lauren Lataro. Yeah. Like, these are all people who have ensemblist cred and so wouldn't talk about a director and so wouldn't talk about an ensemble member without such no- disdain. Yeah. yeah. It's a little weird that Derek would do such a thing because you would assume because that's the normal trajectory of director choreographers, you would assume his backstory would be he also came from the business, came from the came from the ensemble, like rode his way up the chain of or at the least, industry. Or at least was probably a choreographer and mm-hmm. then a director choreographer. Yes. So he worked with ensemble members. And so what is this ugliness? Mm. I, don't, I don't know. Because that is not the only example of that begins. But then thank God for Karen at the end because she's, what, talking to her parents? Mm-hmm. And she says, I, I wrote it all down. Do you know that even being in the chorus of a workshop is so much bigger than so many people ever get to do? This is good, what's happening to me. It's good. I'm good. And I was like, yes, Karen. <laughs> it's, the, it's the healthiest perspective to have for someone who's just starting out, even for someone who's not just starting out. Right. And everyone is like poo-pooing it. It's like, no, you deserve more. No, you did it. I was like, okay, maybe she does. But like, this is a great opportunity. Yeah. This is wonderful. She's working with these... People that she's never worked with before. All of those things that I feel like we would actually say to someone who booked a workshop for a Broadway-bound musical never get said to her. Yeah. Even in, if even if in the first scene she's like, in her head, she's like, oh, I wish I'd gotten Marilyn. What she's saying to Derek is wonderful. And maybe she's even saying it to convince herself that, yes, this is a wonderful thing. And I don't think that's out of, like, out of line either. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes you need to talk yourself into being like, no. This is great. Stop being so negative about what's happening to you because it's actually great. Well, special thanks to Aaron Albano for joining us for this mini-series. You can learn more about him and how to connect with him online by visiting our website, theensemblist.com. Are you enjoying the Smash mini-series? If you are, let us know on any of our social media platforms. 
Recapping and analyzing episodes of Smash was a crazy idea that we had, and so we're considering these first few episodes a trial run. If you're having as much fun as we are, let us know, and we'll keep going. Meanwhile, to stay part of our ongoing Smash analysis, Smash Smash analysis? (laughs) That works. (laughs) Be sure to watch the next episode, The Cost of Art, before next week's recap. You can find all episodes of Smash either on the NBC app or at NBC.com. The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Mo Brady. Please help others find out about The Ensemblist by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also download episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at TheEnsemblist.com. Follow The Ensemblist on Instagram to see the latest posts from our website where we share the stories of talented artists working in Broadway ensembles. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.